What's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. This show is for athletes and entrepreneurs who go against all odds, do whatever it takes, and learn how to perform at the highest level to become the best version of themselves. I'm your host, Kota Nakayama, and this is Achieve Greatness. What is going on? Hi, everybody. This is Kota Nakayama back here again at Achieve Greatness Podcast. And man, am I excited for today's episode. In this episode, we have Zeb Taubib. And if you're someone that wants to achieve at a very high level and perform at a high level, man, this episode is for you. One of the things that we've been talking about through and through and every episode is about having the right mindset and what it takes to achieve at a high level. We dive in very, very deep on the sports psychology and how to have a right mindset to perform at elite level. Zev dives deep and actually gives you real life tactics on how to have the right mindset, talking about flow state and how to get into it, neutral thinking, having an objective reality and changing your perspective to have the best mindset to succeed on and off the field. So with that being said, let's roll over to the interview and let's welcome Zev Taubib. Welcome back to the Chief Greatness Podcast. We're so super excited to have this special guest on today. Um, professional soccer player and has played in the USL and has also played abroad in Sweden as well. Um, I actually met this person. He actually approached me one day. We just ran into coincidentally. Um, I was rehabbing. He's rehabbing, recovering from an injury right now. Um, and I'm just really, truly grateful, you know, um, even though uh, we've only known each other for a short time, but I feel like I've known him forever already just from the relationship we build and me being able to reach out to him and get valuable information. So with that being said, uh, welcome to the Achieve Greatness podcast, Zeb Tabib. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I ran into you. I think uh, I saw you wearing a Nisa shirt, I think. And uh, we were in Elite Ortho, which is a physical therapy place. I, I tore my ACL, which I'm still recovering from. Right. I think it was a shoulder injury for you. And it's not that often you see soccer players wearing Nisa shirts. And I know what that is. Right. So I was really curious. And uh, I came and approached you. And then you told me a little about your story. And then we've exchanged pleasantries a few times. And now we're here. Definitely. Yeah. You know, uh, that Nisa experience wasn't the best experience at all. But I mean, I think the best thing is being able to meet you and stuff like that. So, I mean, um, you know, we'll, go, we'll dive into it about, you know, your professional career and stuff like that. And I've also learned just a lot about, you know, how to navigate through uh, becoming, I guess, a prof- uh, from an amateur to a professional. And I definitely love to ask questions about that. But uh, before we get started, like, I know you're a professional soccer player. You've been in that realm for a while now. But that wasn't always the case, right? Like, you, you started off, like everybody, um, you know, playing soccer at the youth level. So I was wondering, like, what was your first, do you remember your first moment of you playing soccer? And then when was that switch when you started to take soccer more seriously and then started playing more competitively? And how were you preparing to get to that level? I do remember moments. I couldn't say it was one moment in particular, but I started when I was like four, like every other kid. My dad is a surfer, never played mm-hmm. soccer. My mom danced, never touched a soccer ball. I was pretty active according to what they told me. So soccer was quite appealing to me because it was just constant movement. You know, basketball, I hated, you know, they, I'm not the tallest person in the world. They would throw it over my head and I just thought that was the most <laughs> annoying thing. And then, you know, I wasn't, the biggest, so it wasn't like as I got a little older, like they're like, I played flag football a few times and I was like, you know what, I'm not the fastest kid here, even then, and I was like, it doesn't appeal to me, but the concept, and, and also only one person gets to touch a ball at, the, at one time, mm-hmm. so soccer just like really engulfed me, and then I have to say, maybe 
different to others. At eight years old, I decided what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And when I say decided, I was like, I want to play pro soccer and make a difference in the world. What do I do to play soccer all the time? And that job was play, being a pro soccer player. If you told me that job was being a fireman because of the hours, and I would have chosen to be a fireman. I just wanted to play whatever job would allow me to play as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So when I say I kind of decided, it's worked for me and against me since. But, you know, I slept with the ball. I, I took a ball to school, which is not that weird, uh, having since lived abroad. But here, dribbling a ball through the classrooms is a little bizarre. I took it to a level. I mean, there were points where I was wearing two pairs of jeans because I thought like it would make me stronger, like silly, ridiculous <laughs> stuff. Um, I wore I wore this jersey every day until I was like 17, and it was Drogba on the back. And for some, oddly enough, the biggest player in the world was my favorite, um, and I'd worn it so often that the shirt had actually the R fell off. So all it said was Dogba. And <laughs> I was made fun of forever being, I was baby dogma and it kind of just, uh, I don't know what that had to do with anything other than I was obsessed and, you know, I really, really wanted to be around the ball all the time. And I wanted also to, I had read an article about Pele and about Drogba going to play in these countries and stopping wars. And I was, I'm not going to say I was philosophical that at that age, but I was like, look, I want to, I want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Soccer is the most popular sport. It's the sport I love the most. Let's be a pro soccer player. So I gave up like all sweets, all candies, all everything at eight years old. Wow. And I had this private coach, this big Nigerian guy named Prince. And he was kind of the first one to be like, hey, if you want to be a pro, this is what you have to do. I had a couple other coaches who were very helpful before who were like, hey, you know, Zev, you should keep playing. But, you know, I think... One thing I like about my story is I wasn't the best, like, ever. Between the ages of 8 years old to 18, I was the B player. I was on the bench. I was not playing. You know, I was working my way up, but I wasn't the star. We had a kid when I was 18 who was phenomenal. I mean, he he actually, there was a game. He was playing for the New York Cosmos who played a testimonial match against Manchester United. It was for Paul Scholes. Wow. And he started that game. So they were recruiting guys from the youth New York Cosmos. And we were on the New York Cosmos West at the time, so in L.A. And they took two or three of our guys. And, of course, I was, like, jealous and wanted to be like them. And I saw Nani blow by what I thought was the best player I'd ever played with um, is on my team. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's just another level. I had no idea. And... That's kind of how my obsession began was just at that young age. I was just like, this is what I want to do forever. And this, you know, what, what do I have to do to do that? And well, I had very supportive parents that were like, look, we, my parents are very good at what they do and they're obsessed. And so when they saw that, they were like, okay, we can kind of cultivate this. And that's how it got started. Wow. That's really awesome. I just have a quick question regarding that. Um, at such a young age, being obsessed and wanting to go after it, sometimes there's also like, a lot of criticism that could come back from that, right? Like, you know, like, oh, look at that kid. That's, he's that soccer kid. He's that weird. You know, like you said, like being obsessed about that, right? Um, how were you, you able to navigate that at such a young age? And at the same time, when did you know, like, okay, like I'm obsessed with it. And then I know what it's going to take for me to get there. Like, what was that process like? It's a really good question, particularly if you have an audience who's either that young age being picked on for being quote-unquote weird. The truth is I did not handle it well. I was offended often, 
and you know, in, now that I'm older, a lot of the jokes that they said were hilarious. Like, that I'd be running around the track and they would say, run, Forrest, run. Hmm. And like at the time, that would hurt my feelings because I thought they were making fun of me. But really, that's just funny. Like, it's, that's a funny joke. Now, if you said that to me, I'd be like, that's hilarious. But, I, you know, when you're around the ages of 10 to 15, 16, you just want to fit in. Mm -hmm. I wanted to fit in like everyone else. But there was a separate part that was like, I want to fit in up until a point. So, like, I, you know, I went to the odd party and I was like, wow, I do not enjoy this. I do not fit. Okay, now I'm okay with being weird. But I try, you know, I want it to be normal. Mm -hmm. um, I also think... Uh, not that anybody's normal, but I was pretty short growing up, so normal just wasn't really in the cards, mm. whatever that is, which it doesn't really exist, but our imagination of what is normal, it's, you know, it, it wasn't really an option for me, right. uh, so it seemed. So pretty early, I was like, I don't care, this is what I want to do, and then there was some type of, you could call it, I don't know, I don't know what you would call it, but there was some feeling that was like, look, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, that's, uh, that's the end of it. If they don't like it, it still hurt my feelings, though. So I don't really have a good answer. One of the things that has helped me since, and this is kind of the, a theory that I have, so it could be way off. But if you're offended, it's either for two reasons. One, you wish what they said wasn't true, but you think it's true. Or you care so much about what they think that it hurts your feelings. So, for example... When the guy told me, uh, run, Forrest, run, maybe uh, it made me feel dumb because, you know, in the movie Forrest Gump, he's like a weirdo running all the time. So either I identified as Forrest, I thought that was true, and when he pointed that out, I was like, damn, I wish that wasn't true. But I believed it. Or I, that, whoever that kid was, who was a random kid, and I definitely don't remember who it was, I cared about his opinion so much that I wanted to fit in. And in between the ages of 10 to 18, I would say that you really just want to fit in. So it doesn't, everything offends you because you just want to fit in. But as you get older, I think those two theories are really important because if, if somebody were to call me, Zeb, you're really fat. Like I wouldn't be offended at all because I don't believe I'm fat. Mm. Where even if the, the most respected say Ronaldo said, Zeb, you're fat, I just would be like, no, I, I don't feel that way about myself. So you wouldn't be offended. Mm. But if, mm. you know, maybe with Ronaldo said it, you might want to think different. But if somebody said it like Ronaldo said to you, you're the worst player ever, and you already thought you were the worst player ever, you would be offended. So now, if I were to say it to somebody, it's a little young for 10-year-olds, but if somebody offends you, that's actually a really good opportunity to be like, you know, if it offends me, that means I think it's true. You know, let's say, you know, I, as, when people call me short, I'm the first one to go like, yeah. You know, in your in this social system, you know, if I went to Japan or somewhere else or the Philippines, I'd probably be normal size. But here, I'm short. So if it offends me, then it either it means I wish it wasn't true, but I believe it is, so I may as well deal with it. Or whoever said it, I really care about their opinion. I wish they didn't think that, but I can't control what they think anyway, so I may as well come to terms with the fact that people think I'm short, which I have now. But and also, part of me is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I really don't feel that way ever, right, right. unless I go into a bar. Then I do feel that way. But, I, you know, it's just not something that bothers me anymore. So I would say if I was talking to my younger selves, I would probably pitch that concept. But the problem is when you're 10, 10 to 18, it doesn't really matter because you just want to fit in so badly. And then, you know, there's the classic, you know, type of Kobe Bryant and 
you know, whatever superstar, they'll say, you know, be weird, go for your dream. I would say, of course, you know, that's good. But, they're, you know, you don't want to be miserable every day. Right. I think, you know, you know, you could even go up to that person and say that hurts your feelings. That doesn't really work, actually. Usually mm-hmm. they just make fun of you worse, more, make fun of you more. But, uh, you know, if eventually, I, I'll tell you, say this. Now that I'm out of that school, like when you're in school, you know how it is, it's like a bubble. Like everything feels so important. Now that I'm out of that, and I actually am a personal trainer for a couple of young kids, and I see them in school and they're getting bullied, you see, it doesn't matter. Like when, you're, when you leave the school, it's like it's all gone. That bubble has just disappeared. Right. And that's really lovely because then you, when you see that that bubble disappears, you're like, oh, my gosh, wow. You know, it doesn't really matter what they think. And now I have a group of people around me who are just as weird as me. You know, they want to play soccer every day. And now I don't, now I found, you find your tribe, I guess you could say. That's, that's your new so normal. You, I mean, yeah, my normal. Like, look at you. I mean, you're crazy too. You've got your whole, you've got all this YouTube stuff, which I have a dozen questions for you about. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's weird. You're recording all the time. People <laughs> must be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm, t- I'm you know, I have my, I'm not as, quite as popular as yours, but I'm trying mine too. And you just have to go, you know, this is what I've decided to do. And then. That's the deal. That's crazy. Right. Like, like you said, being professional, now that I like, I'm trying to reflect back, right? You being professional, that's not normal at all. So why would you even want to be normal? No, well, I was just going to say, there is no normal. That's the problem. It's an imagination. Whatever normal, it just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But, then, yeah, you not, yeah, yeah, you not being normal. So, right, growing up, um, did you play any club? Did you play for academy? And then what was that process like? And you, I guess, you know, eventually played college and you ended up uh, playing professionally. So can you just take us through that? And then I guess what was not, what was normal? And what was, I mean, what was your daily process like? And at the same time, how were you able to not be compared to like all those other players? Because right, majority of the players you played with didn't end up becoming pro, right? So how were you able to, you know, get even better? I guess, you know, quote unquote, you know, achieve your greatness through that process right and then keep on pushing and pushing and get to that next level why what separated you from that uh, from, from that um from from your teammates um okay to answer to answer your first question i started ayso ayso all-star type of thing played club mm-hmm. then at like and i jumped around to a bunch of different clubs i was very fortunate i couldn't find a team i was too small or whatever and there was this coach i started privates with and the opportunity to do, to do privates is, you know, already a privileged opportunity. But this coach was uh, what I would regard as like the best youth coach, certainly that I ever had, but maybe, you know, in the world. Uh, and his name was Dan Metcalf, or his name is Dan Metcalf. And what happened was he had this team that was U18, and I was 13 at the time. Wow. And he's like, look, nobody will take you, but I will. So I played for them wow. when I was 13. And I didn't play in a ton of games. But I trained with them every day, and I played in a handful of games. There's, a, there's some highlights somewhere where they give me the captain's armband and it doesn't fit on my arm because <laughs> I was so small. Um, and, you know, he really pounded in, like, these, these good foundation, communication, obviously ethic, and then, like, the, the, the ability to make decisions with the ball is crucial. So I played for them, then by having done that, we actually went, and this is, was really helpful, that team won Dallas Cup, this was years ago, which at the time was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So the following year, they were like, look, we don't want to go to Dallas Cup. 
we want to go abroad and just play teams randomly in order to get ready for state cup at the time. So they, we went to Fulham, West Ham, and one other team I don't recall now. And I went and trained with the youth teams. I got to train with my age group at West Ham and at Fulham. Mm-hmm. And when I was at Fulham, they kind of liked me. So I was like, I went back every summer until I was 18. And I would only go for a few weeks at a time. Part of it was they weren't prepared to sign me to a full team deal. Part of the main issue was in order to get a work permit over there, it's really difficult unless you have a European passport. Mm. So unless you're playing for the national team, which is 14, 15, even if you're playing for the youth national team, that still doesn't count. You really have to play for the first team. So that wasn't happening, but it, it gave me a lot of confidence. Now I thought when I came home from Fulham, I could find a team here. I still struggled finding a team here. So I bounced around a bunch of different clubs. I can name them off, but if you're not familiar with California, they won't mean anything. Eventually, I was playing for like this, I was 17. I was actually, this is, I think, a clever part of the story. So I was playing as a junior in JV soccer. I was, in, I was playing JV soccer, whatever, coach didn't like, didn't think I was good, blah, blah, blah. But by 18, I was playing academy. And that had to do with certain circumstances with school rules that I couldn't play varsity. I transferred. But then also it had to do with I was going to training. I was driving from Pasadena or Malibu to Pasadena, which is like two hours there and back. Mm -hmm. And I was training with this B team, basically. And I was doing well. I wouldn't say I was like phenomenal. But every day I would watch the academy team play and like wait around for them to call me and say, oh, we need an extra player. I was just like stay there for hours waiting for the opportunity, which never came. But I went to a tryout, which I didn't make. And the coach was like, I don't like it. But the following year or halfway through the year, he's like, look, we need a player. Why don't you come on the team? So I played for them. And that was a big turning point in that, okay, now maybe I could play Division One because I was playing for an academy team. And I wasn't highly recruited. I went to the UCSB camp, the Irvine camp, the Cal Poly camp. I was like the MVP at the UCSB camp, which meant nothing to them. I didn't, they didn't want me or anything. And I was like, dang, what do I do? So I went to this camp. And at this Cal Poly San Francisco camp was a coach from a small school in Indiana called Valparaiso. And they were a Division I school. And they were interested. I didn't know how interested, and it was kind of expensive. It was a private school. So I flew out there, went on an official visit, and it was just magical. It just like everything was just they cared about the person, and they cared about the player, and the coach was amazing. And I eventually signed for them. To answer your second question, which was what's the difference between – I mean, look, I, I'd be the first to tell you that I wasn't the most gifted in certain areas as other players. And when I watch youth kids today, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I can – see them and go, look, you could be a pro because I know the level that I was then. And I also know the level of my friends that didn't go pro. So I look at these young kids, I go, it's possible. Like they could do it. Now it's difficult. And it will come down to many circumstances, injuries. Do you still love it? But what I would say, I don't know if it set me apart because I don't want to compare myself directly to them. And I had a lot of privileges. You know, I didn't have to feed my family in the afternoons like some of the kids did. Mm -hmm. But I would say 
what helped a lot was when I went to Fulham, I saw their schedule. And so if there's like tangible advice, if you want to like click, if you, in this podcast, if you want to say like advice that you can take home with you right now, this is the part where I would say that is they train Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, game Saturday, off Sunday. So they have two days off a week, but they train twice on Monday. They do a lift in the morning, play in the afternoon, lift in the morning, play in the afternoon on Tuesday, off on Wednesday, play twice on Thursday, play in the morning, no, lift in the morning on Friday, play in the afternoon, game Saturday. And they start that at 12 years old. So I was like, oh my gosh, how the heck do I compete with that? You know, they're starting doing that at that age. I mean, that is, that's why they produce. I mean, I played with players when I was there that one of them just signed for Atletico Madrid. I mean, they were ballers, really good players. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really helped me. So to ask, answer your question, I, I got the, I had in my hand the blueprint of what it meant to be a pro. Mm-hmm. Um, now I still didn't know like what kind of weights they did. I didn't know what drills, all the drills that they did, but I had a, I had a schedule. So that was the first thing. So I knew that if I wanted to compete, and this was my logic, that I needed to touch a ball every second of the day, which is why I dribbled the ball to school. Cause I was like, there's no way I'm going to match those hours like they do. Hmm. So that was the first thing. The second thing is each player has their strengths and weaknesses. And I personally don't really believe they change that much. And a lot of your strengths and weaknesses have to do with what you like. Like I love passing a ball. I enjoy it. I don't love dribbling that much. So I got pretty good at passing and I'm not great at dribbling. So you could, a coach could look at me and go, Zev, you need to work on your dribbling, which everybody should work on their weaknesses. But that really wasn't going to make me a pro. Mm -hmm. What was going to make me a pro is how great my passing is Mm -hmm. because it was already my strength. Now I needed to be, you know, I needed to be able to dribble, but my strength was what was going to take me. And if you look at Messi and Ronaldo, those are exceptions to the rules. So you can't really draw upon them as an example. I mean, a great, the best examples are like Milner and Albrighton who've been playing in the Premier League for 10 plus years and people are qualifying them as boring players, but they're very good at what they're good at. They're very good at crosses. They're really good in their defensive shape. They know when to dribble. They're not the fastest. You know, they got their system down. Those are like, that is very impressive. So anyways, I figured out kind of my system for me personally, which was, okay, I need to know how much I can dribble and when. I need to know how much I need to pass and when and shoot and whatever the other decisions were. So quickly, I personally, for my traits, I was like, look, the better I can get what I, what I call, I call it the four pillars, soccer IQ, technical ability. Actually, I'm going to start off. There's actually five. The mental part, which came to my attention much later, the soccer IQ, which is the ability to make decisions, the technical part, then the nutrition and sports fitness and conditioning. And then injury prevention, which kind of falls under that same category. And what helped me is, look, I wasn't going to become the fastest or the biggest jumper or whatever. I was already, you know, jumping wasn't going to be the skill that I had. It was going to be my soccer IQ, my ability to make my decisions with and without the ball. You, don't, you only have the ball for three minutes in a game. You mm-hmm. added it all up. And the game itself it goes for 90 minutes. But if you count it all the time, it goes out of bounds. The game is actually only 60 minutes long. So I have, you know, 57 minutes that I'm not touching the ball. So in that, that's what I realized for me. And by realizing that, I think I was able to go, okay, how do I organize my time appropriately? So 
Soccer IQ is developed through two main ways, which are watching soccer and playing soccer. So by playing, I mean, it's great. And, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a, I guess you could say like a Grinch in this way. When I see an exercise like passing against the wall, look, if you're by yourself, there's not a lot you can do. You got to pass against the wall. But there's no decision making being made in those drills because nothing is changing. You don't realize, even if I were to throw you a ball, your body's going to make a billion decisions. It's looking at my hand, my trajectory, looking around your own surroundings. Just two people, it makes a huge difference. So I always was like, look, I need to play with other people as much as possible. So I know there's a big, particularly in the American culture, there's like individual training, individual training, let me work on my crosses and da da da. I've played with plenty of players that technically I thought were atrocious, but their game decisions was were fantastic. Hmm. Now you want the combination, you know, if I say I want to hit the ball to your face, I want to be able to do that. So of course that's where the next pillar comes in, which is the technical. So to answer your question, how I set myself apart, I think, I don't know when it happened exactly, but there was somewhere along the way where I was like, look, one of the reasons I love soccer is you've played 5v2 before. It's not the biggest or fastest or strongest that, that wins 5v2. You know, it's the cleverest. It's the one who does a little hip this way and makes you think that way, and then you go the other way. That, you know, that, and as a center mid, that is kind of my bread and butter, mm. is the ability to make people think a certain thing and then do whatever else I wanted. Uh, which is very much like the force in a way. I get to like control them with my, my looks or a play or whatever. So that's what really helped me. So if there's somebody out there listening, I would say like, look, if you're really fast and really strong, you like do that. That's your thing. Like you've got to work on the technical, you got to work on your game decisions, but you're fast and strong. So, you know, that's what you do. You know, maybe you don't need to be practicing your passes. You need to be practicing you know, a great example is the Become Elite guy, who I'm sure you're familiar with, Matt Sheldon. He and I played together at Stack. At that time, he was just a training player. And he's been very good at practicing what he's good at. He's like, I do crosses, and I blow by people, and I defend. That is my job. That's what I do. I don't really do more than my job. Uh, and he's had a great career, I think, partly because of that. So I think that's part of the set me apart. But the main thing, because that happened later, I would say, the main thing that set me apart was like, I just loved it a ton. You know, I was just, you know, I wanted to do it and do it and do it and do it. And if you love it that way, when you look, my brother's a financial planner. So he's always talking about the stock market and how to invest appropriately. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from a widened view, 90% of stocks go up over 10 years. So you're like, I'm going to make money. That's very similar with soccer in that every day you're going to have ups and downs. I played well today, I played bad today, I played bad. But over three years, over five years, you're getting better. Mm -hmm. And my, you could say my competitors, I wouldn't even call them competitors, I would just say other people I was playing with, you know, either they stopped playing entirely, which meant the compounding sequence was over, or they weren't in love with it any longer. So while when they played each day, it wasn't the same. And I can also say my love of it is, you know, maybe why I got injured on some occasions because I was, you know, so much desiring to do help the team, whatever it may be. So I say love it with a grain of salt because I think it's like you want to love it smartly. You know, you don't want to be a, a, a ding dong. And then like I have been many times where I go, I love it so much. I'll play five hours a day and then you don't get to play for three weeks. That doesn't work.
Yeah, I want to kind of touch upon that because um, as I was listening to one of your videos, you know, like 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 we said, like just to recap everything, a lot of the things like you talked about, like the five pillars of soccer, right? The decision making, the mental aspect, the technical ability, how are you as an athlete? Um, a lot of it also has to do with the mental side. And as you, right, you're so obsessed and you want to keep on winning. And like sometimes you get to the point where you get start to get obsessed, maybe like, you know, you're, you're grinding, you're working hard, but then the coach, you know, he doesn't put you in the starting lineup, you're on the bench or, and then like, let's say you, you get cut from this team or, um, you know, things don't go your way and you start getting angry, you get emotional. And, but like you said, you know, trying to enjoy the process and stay, you know, um, being present in the moment. Right. So I was wondering how in your experience you're able to do that, you know, when you're grinding, 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 yet you still want to, you know, reflect back and, you know, just kind of enjoy that process, right? I'm glad you brought it up because I think of all the pillars I talked about, this has been certainly the most difficult for me or, yeah, I'd say that's one of the more challenging ones. And the, this one is not, it's very difficult to put a ta tangible, tactical skill that I can tell you to do every day. Like, if you told me, like, with the kids that I train or even with the players that I play with or even with myself, I'll go, okay, today's soccer IQ. I need to watch 15 minutes of soccer, study what the left back does. That's easy. Okay, you do that. Da -da. Technical, hit off the wall, work out. Okay, I do my workouts. I do my injury prevention, done. With the mental part, this one is incredibly, is even more subjective. The other ones can be too, but how do you do this? And I have gone on a heck of a journey, I would say, mm -hmm. on finding what's right for me. And one of the things that really helped me is this uh, one book. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis. Um, and the guy who recommended to me now plays in Holland. He's a very good player. Gave me the book, and I was like, look, I don't want to read about tennis, so why would you give me this dumb book? And uh, I read the book, and I've actually had uh, the opportunity to work with the author since because I really liked the book, and I, re I reached out to him, and I said, I want to learn from you about this concept. So uh, the book talks about a couple concepts, and, it's, and none of it's that complicated. Uh, it's, there's a great quote. It's, it's easy to be simple, but it's complicated. It's, it's very easy. Um, I'm going to get back to that quote. I forget what it is. I wrote it down. He actually told it to me the other day. But this book explains this concept of learning and how, you, how we actually learn. And I'll get to that in a second because it addresses the, the other pillars. But in regards to the mental part, what helped me a lot was the experience, first of all. So there's nothing that can replace the experience. You're going to have to sit on a bench. I can tell you, I can give, you can read all the books you can, that I read up all of them or a lot of them. And I've done whatever, everything I'm saying is going to feel like a great piece of advice, but it's not going to make, you're not going to, I'm explaining to you a feeling and you can't really properly discuss a feeling. If mm. it was up to me, I would take this feeling and put it inside you. Then you would get it. But I'm going to do the best I can because words are all we have. So with those words, I would say what helped me was a large part of it, going back to what we talked about before, is, is the opinion. So say, um, and I've had this before, say like a coach thinks you're not good, right? If you don't think you're good and the coach tells you, look, I'm not going to start you, now your confidence is probably struck because not because the coach told you you're not good because you already think that you're not good and the coach has confirmed that to you 
So if you have this inner confidence, you can say, and go, you know what? The coach thinks I'm not good, but I'm good. And here's the problem with that, which is what, you know, okay, just be confident. You know, that's like one of the most frustrating things I would hear all the time. It's like, look, if I could choose to be confident, this would be a piece of cake. You know, I don't feel confident at this time. Mm-hmm. You know, why can't I fix that? And what helped me, I've worked with a number of sports psychologists, is if you can start thinking, and that's why I said before, I don't really feel like I have competitors because if you think of them as competitors, you're automatically comparing yourself. And you've heard this a dozen times, but, you know, comparing yourself is the thief of joy. But as you start thinking as, like, better and worse, you're just digging yourself a pretty deep hole because better and worse is subjective. You know, you, you and I could play well, – there's plenty of players I've played 1v1 and they've beaten me. And then we go play a game at 11 – and the coach picks me instead of them, right? It's just, in a, it's just in a subjective opinion. And as you get to the higher levels, particularly at the pro level, like Ozil. Are you kidding? There's a million people that would tell you Ozil's the, an amazing top 10 level player. And he doesn't play at Arsenal, who are in 12th place. So that's, that's an opinion. Now he doesn't fit the system. Is he bad? It's very hard to believe he's a bad player, particularly if you look at his highlights from Real Madrid. I mean, he was a baller. Mm-hmm. And he's making 350 a week. So what, I'm, what I'd like to say, and this is, takes practice, but I have practiced myself going, and I've said this in one of those Zeb talks you referred to. If you want to view yourself as a tool, and this struck me, I was playing in Sweden, and there was a player, and I just thought he was phenomenal. He was a center mid. He was phenomenal. And I thought, I'm a center mid. I think he's better than me. And I already, the moment I did that, people are going to say, oh, you've got to tell yourself you're better, you're better. That's also, to me, that's not true either. There's this new sports psychologist out there named Trevor Moad who's preaching this neutral thinking, which the concept is if you try and be really happy, it's like a pendulum. If you push the pendulum one way, it has to eventually swing the other way in the same direction. So if you're like, I'm going to be happy, 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 eventually you're going to be really freaking sad. So how do you get to this neutral thinking? And this neutral thinking is kind of a strategy. And the, to way, the way to get to neutral thinking is my philosophy. Everyone has, other people might have their own, is you have to look at the objective reality. And I've discussed this. I have a little, a little class on this, and I can send it to you. You can just look at it for fun. Is the objective reality of the situation. Ball goes left, ball goes right. Ball goes backwards, ball goes forward. Um, ball goes out of bounds, ball goes inbounds. This is the reality. Mm-hmm. Everything else that you've discussed in your head, bad ball, bad player, good player, great goal, bad ball, it's all made up. This is a made-up concept. Right. And it's, even, it's proven even more, and this really struck me, We've been changing the, like, when I first, when I started playing soccer, I was like, this is a God-given sport. God made these rules for us. And then the other day, we changed the rules. Like, now you don't have to kick it backwards off the kickoff. <laughs> it's like, oh my, you realize that this game was made up. We made up this game. It's not God-given. It's a made-up game. And we can change the rules tomorrow that we can use our hands if we want to. We're not going to, but it's made up. And then, if you want, it depends where you are, what state you're in. But then you take this to life, and you go like, Okay, am I a bad person? That person said I was a bad person. What's the objective reality? I dropped a glass of water and broke the glass. That's the objective reality. There's no good. There's no bad. You know, my mom's yelling at me, but the reality is it's just broken glass. Um, So that strategy was really helpful for me. As I started going, okay, the coach says, like I've had coaches say, Zeb, you're not um, giving enough to the team. I would say, okay, show me examples, coach. And he would show me maybe footage, right? And I go, oh, that's very helpful. Okay, I can learn from that piece. Now, that's still his opinion, though. I might, you know, I have my own soccer opinions. I go, you know what, that's what my coach thinks. I, I think something else. 
now he's the coach, so it's got to be a good balance. You know, if the coach wants you to do something, then that's how the rules of the game are. You know, I think there was somebody out there, I forget who it was, trying to create a team, um, like, with no coaches, basically, and, you know, have a communist team, in a sense. And it, it doesn't really, as far as I know, it doesn't really work. And it doesn't matter, because that's not the rules of the game we play. So you got to kind of balance what the coach wants you to do, but... The coach is an opinion. That what they are not saying is not God's stated fact, which is really difficult. I think this has to do with, I, I believe in caveman theory, which is like everything we have to do has to do with caveman. So like if your chief told you like you have to do this, if you didn't do it, you would die. Mm -hmm. So the coach is the chief. So coach says, Deb, you're not playing hard enough. And then you go, oh, I'm not playing hard enough. I'm not a good enough player. I suck. I'm the worst. Boom. You believe that because it's what the chief said. Now, what's the objective and this is why I really don't like it at halftime when coaches come in and go, you're not trying hard, you know, what are you doing? They're winning all the second balls. You know, that's why I, it drives me nuts because it's, what's in a, it's not an objective reality. Tell me how many we lost. You could say, okay, we've lost five balls, second balls, and it was all the center mid. Okay, well, I'm playing right back. That's not, that's not me. You know, what do you want me to do? Want me in the middle? That doesn't make any sense. So I think looking into the objective reality is a really helpful tool for this mental part. The second one I would say is, and if you ever needed help deciding what objective reality is, you know, you just want to think of like, besides, despite, say, take away the spiritual part of God and all that. Just think, okay, gravity, that's real. My sense, my touch, my, those are real things. Almost everything else. And I give a harsh example, but let's say um, a family member passes away. What you feel is real. But your feeling towards that was kind of made up by society. So, for example, look, I would feel horribly sad if one of my family members went away. But if you were grew up in a culture where, which happens in these indigenous countries where death is celebrated, then you might not feel sad. You know, that's just, you know, it's, the, it's kind of the social dynamic that we're in. So the second thing that's really important, I said the objective truth, oh, is see yourself as a tool. That's, well, that's the way that I kind of did it for me, is like, for example, what position do you play? I play right back and right winger. Right, okay, right back and right winger. Right, right winger. So you're a type of right back and right winger. I've seen actually some of your stuff, which I quite like. I've seen a couple of your goals. You like to come in. You'll make deep runs, and I saw that one header. Is, so you want to go, okay, so my tool as a right back is I offer something going forward, but I'm also quite good defensively. These are generic terms. But, and I offer the coda, whatever the coda is. Mm -hmm. That's what I offer. You take another right back, okay? And the coach prefers that other one, just for the case of this scenario. That doesn't mean you're worse than that right back. You're just a hammer. He's a, he's a knife. He chose the knife this weekend. Mm -hmm. Now, he might choose the knife every weekend, which is really difficult, because then you're like, I'm worse. And then, you know, you think your players think you're worse, and then you think, then you think you're worse. But if you can I kind of split it and go, look, I'm a hammer. He doesn't like the hammer. I can't make him like the hammer. That's, uh, he doesn't like me as a tool. So I got to find a new coach is what that really means. There's not a lot you can do about that. Or you go up to the coach and say, coach, what can I work on? And there's ways to sharpen your hammer or to make it stronger or whatever. There's definitely ways to improve your hammer, but you're a hammer. You're not going to be a knife. So that's the deal. And I know going back to my experience in Sweden, this player was phenomenal. And I remember he scored from halfway against Malmo and he played the same position as me. And I thought, how do I compete with this? And the mistake I made, which I regret to this day, I try not to have a lot of regrets, but I do regret this, was I tried to be better than him. That was my mistake. Instead, I should have said, look, my tool is I'm really good at keeping the ball. I have a 
great defensive shape, and I can make him better. You know, I can give him the ball more because he's very good at shooting from halfway, from distance. That's not my skill set. So I, I, am the, I am the hammer and he's the knife or whatever it is. And that is a really helpful tool. Now, when you're young, this is really difficult because there are gaps in quote-unquote better. You know, it, you, could, you could say 99% of coaches would pick that player or this player. But as you get to higher levels and, uh, you know, the teams that I coach, even at the younger levels, you know, I, I work with a couple kids. And anybody out there, I can work with you too if you'd like. And I watch these kids play for their teams. And the coach has an opinion, whoever the coach is. And I have a totally different opinion. These kids are 12, you know, and I already have a different opinion. I'm like, I play that kid as a center mid. I play this kid here. I play this system. Look, it's already become subjective. So your technical skill, you know, you got to, by the time you're 12, you got to be able to juggle to a thousand. That's kind of the deal. Um, you have to develop certain foundations that make you good enough to get to a level. But once you've gone to that, like at your level, for example, your level is now subjective opinion. Now, you may never find the coach that believes in you. That could be the case. Mm-hmm. Or, and I say never, I mean, one day, say, say being a pro is or isn't in the cards, you might be playing pickup one day, and it'll be the best pickup of your life because you found the right group of people, and you'll be playing the best soccer you've ever played, and it's just the right combination of people. That could happen, too. So think of it, my, to answer your question, is by looking at the objective reality and looking at yourself as a tool, uh, a different type, he, you know, when the coach goes to pick his tools, he, he picked a, your tool. He put, and that goes really helpful. I found this helpful. There were days when I started over that guy. That was great. And I would say, that guy's better. Like, he's phenomenal. Why is the coach picking me? And that would screw me up, too. Now, this is my mental struggle that I've had. I know a lot of players don't go through this. But for me, what was super helpful, maybe it's why I enjoy talking about it, is I was able to go like, yeah, but I'm, I'm this, we're different. We're not, I'm not competing with this person. We are different tools. Mm-hmm. And that has been so helpful, particularly when you're playing center mid or right back, whatever. You think you're competing with that right back. And the coaches will say that to you. Say, you want to get, beat that guy? I need you to score more. I need you to do better. And they've already set you on a terrible path, in my opinion, because you're a different tool. You're just a different tool. And a great coach, in my opinion, would go to you and say, look, you're really good at these aspects. I hope to use you in X games or come off the bench or start you and pull you off 30 because you're good at this. This is your tools. Right. Um, so that, I was, that was a really helpful piece for me when it came to the mental part and the objective reality. And there's one last thing I want to add, and then I'll, I'll we can go to the next subject, is I was working with a sports psychologist. Um, there's a guy named Michael Gervais who's big time. He's like the most famous. He worked with um, Kerry Walsh, who likes a four-time gold medal Olympian and works with um, the coach of uh, the Seahawks. Uh, what's his name? I forget his name. Pete and, Yeah, Pete Carroll, who's a big guy on this whole mental stuff. So he worked – this guy's big time. And I worked with this uh, other sports psychologist named uh, Robert, and he was phenomenal as well. And they talk about this concept called a theme thought, which is, I think is really cool. If you ever go and play soccer – or play basketball. I think basketball, oddly, is a better example. And you go play, and this goes back to that book, Inner Game of Tennis, and you try and score, right? You're shooting, you're shooting, and you're missing, even if you say you're shooting on goal. And then you try and spell a word at the same time that you're trying to shoot or score. What happens is you are trying to score, and your body kind of already knows how to do that, but your brain is trying to tell it what to do. 
and it slows the process down. It's like this part all of a sudden is so trying to score that it doesn't allow the body to do what it knows how to do already. Mm -hmm. So when you give it a, a simple word to spell, it kind of goes into flow state. Um, now, this is like a magic trick, so it doesn't last very long, and you'll, your brain will go to the next subject, which meditation is another concept we can get into. But what's clever about this idea is if you give yourself a theme thought to think about throughout the game, mm -hmm. you can avoid going into, I'm playing so well, I'm playing so bad, I'm playing so well, I'm playing so bad. And you can stay in what this other guy talks about, this flow state or neutral state, because you have this theme thought. So let's say, so pick a theme thought can be uh, difficult if you, you have to practice. So for example, something I, I'm, I'm very good at is passing between lines. So that could be a theme thought. I go, what I played today, I just want to work on continuing to pass between lines. So let's say I make a bad pass. Then I play a ball between the lines and I mess up. Normally you could go, I suck, I'm not good, I'm bad. But I, did I do what I set out to achieve today? To pass between lines? I did. So the objective reality was the ball just was taken by another person's foot. And then you can quickly go on to the next, you know, now I've lost the ball, how do I win it back so I can play between lines again? Or a great one, which I prefer, is you give yourself a theme thought that you want to work on. So it's one thing that I want to get better at is I want to hit balls over longer distances. Coaches like it. It also spreads the other team out better. So now I'm looking in a really different way. Now I'm looking farther. I'm not just looking in front of me. I'm looking literally farther. If I look right now, you can't see. I can probably show you, actually, I think. Yeah. I'm looking at this car. I'm looking at my steering wheel. But if I'm looking farther, there's a store. But when you play soccer, you might only see the steering wheel because you're like, I'm so, you know, you're not calm enough to look long. So anyways, my theme thought was, I'm going to look long. And I remember I was playing a horrible game. Um, I misplaced like all these passes. But my theme thought at the time was like, I'm going to hit long balls. That's what I'm focusing on. And we went down to 10 men. I was playing in Sweden. And I was, my whole thing was I'm going to hit, I want to hit a long ball. And it was, it was in an effort to stay consistent and play well. It wasn't just because I wanted to play a long ball. It was if I keep in mind this theme thought when I make a bad pass or a good pass, I can get past the roller coaster because my goal today is to look, am I looking for a longer pass? And then the last play of the game was a longer pass that led to an assist. We scored and we won. And I remember going, that was the worst game I've ever played. But the, what I was happy about was that my emotion during the game didn't go, I'm great, I suck, I'm great, I'm stuck. It was, did I go out to set out what I wanted to achieve, regardless if I completed passes or didn't complete passes. As it so happened, it led to a great thing. But that theme thought, I think, is a really helpful tool. So I think that is enough. <laughs> Man, just right there. <laughs> so much information. I um lots of process, but I feel like, man, I don't know. I my whole notebook is literally filled with notes right now. Like so <laughs> Well, I think that it's really if it's really important, I think it'll be fun but given your audience as well. It's something you'll struggle with. You saw my those Zeb talks that I made, I made those a few years ago now. Mm -hmm. Um is they are one, they ring true, but also practice yourself. You know, I just gave you my, I would go practice. Say like, oh, okay, I'm going to pick a, and then you might go, this is dumb. It doesn't work for me. A lot of players I know, and this is another aspect in the same subject is, and this does help me some, is if you have a, like a greater belief in regards to the rest of the world, like a God or a spiritual thing or whatever it is, I, when I set out on this journey of how to solve my my mental struggles in the sport. 
I was like, I don't care about being happy. I just want to play good soccer. Mm -hmm. So if my sports psychologist tells me that I have to hold my breath all day, because that'll make me play good soccer, then I'll do that. I didn't care about my life being happy or whatever else. I just wanted to play well. So one of the things that can be helpful that I found out to playing good soccer and, of course, to your life is having some belief system, whatever it is. You could believe that, you know, everything doesn't happen for a reason and, you know, we're here for no reason. Fine. That's your belief. That's having something that helps because, you know, when I tore my ACL, for example, like that sucks. Why, why the heck did that happen? I have, a, I have a personal system that helps me, you know, a narration, they say, that helps me through that. On the flip side, why the heck was I born in Malibu in a really nice place and I get to play soccer? Why do I deserve that? I have a thing in my brain that, you know, helps me. I have my own personal system that says I can, uh, you know, go about my day hate without hating myself because I've basically made up a belief that works for me. So if your belief is Jesus or if your belief is you know, a God or a belief is whatever, I, that really does help when you're playing because you're going to have ups and downs and um, having a system is really helpful. Right, right. Um, man, I um, I really like a lot of it when I started to, uh, when I learn or actually talk to like peak performers like yourself, right, that have achieved at a very high level, a lot of it comes down to that mindset, that belief system, um, I just want to recap a couple of things that you talked about. I think, um, like you said, the, the, I think the quote was the end, um, it's easy to play complex, but it's hard to play simple or like something like, yeah, there you go. That's um, the enemy of ac- execution is co- complexity, something like that. Yeah. Um, also recapping, right. Um, being in a neutral state, being that tool, right. Don't be too highs in the highs. Don't be too lows in the lows. And just overall, um, your experience, right? So very great stuff. And lastly, um, when it comes to being a tool, I just thought of this. I don't know, like, um, have you ever seen that, like, picture where um, the teacher's like, hey, so for your test today, you have to climb a tree. And then the monkey's like, oh, I'm going to ace this. And then you see the elephant right next door. He's like, how the heck am I supposed to do this? And then you see a fish. And then the fish is like, oh, my, like, he's, like, literally in shock. Right. But at the end of the day, we're all used as tools differently. Right. Like um, if you see like different. Like, I like that. Analogy. Mm-hmm. That's very good. I love that. That's great. Right. So like, a lot of things that we're thinking about um, on the subject of belief system. Right. Um, uh, for me, one of my belief system is, let's say, for example, uh, when it, for me, like my personal story of when I, you know, growing up playing competitive soccer, playing collegiate and now keep on pursuing a lot of the things for me was like that um, whenever adversity hits, there's supposed to be a lesson that's supposed to be learned so that in the future, I'm gonna become a better person. I wanna go back to your belief system and there's a lot of people when I start coaching players, right? They say, they have all these like um, things where like, hey, like I'm not good enough or like maybe for you example, it might be like, hey, I'm too short or I was on the B team and then they start making the excuses. We constantly make the excuses and because of our like experiences or, or in our past, how, how are you able to set yourself on, like, right? Like, because there are so many reasons why you could have said that you will never become a professional, right? I, w- I was always, I wasn't, you know, I never played academy. I was the B-, B team. I have no scholarships, right? I'm getting injured, right? Yet you didn't make those excuses, right? What's that mentality like, like pushing through and 
And then can you also explain, I guess now I want to kind of know in, going into your professional journey and like how that first, um, when you first got that, your first professional contract. Cool. Uh, I would say <laughs> it's illogical to answer the first question. It doesn't make sense. Look, if you look, first of all, if you look at the numbers of the fact that you're alive is right. incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. On top of the fact that the world is spinning in a circle and somehow we're floating in it also makes no sense. So, um, but then if you add in the numbers that you've seen, I'm sure you've seen, you know, you're, you are already in the top 1% because you played college sports at high school. I mean, that already. So the truth is, though, it's just ignorance. I mean, that's what helped me the most was I was just, I watched on TV, I go, that's easy. I can do that. I'm going to do that. So I was just like, I can do that. And then there were helpful pieces along the way. A friend of mine would go pro. I'd be like, what the hell? He went pro. I can go pro. Mm-hmm. Um, so really the best thing was ignorance. I mean, say, say if I knew everything that I knew now, maybe I'd be like, what the heck? This is not realistic. I can say, um, I, this is a slight side note, but my, my family's in the film industry. And we get scripts all the time and they get scripts and I, I read a couple of them for fun. And, and, you know, whoever sends us a script is like, like I just had one sent to me recently and they're like, this is a great one. The person who writes the script, this is going to be a movie. I look at that script and I go, no chance. It's the, I know what it takes. I watch my family make movies. I know what it takes. And I have no optimism for them whatsoever. I'm a pessimist. I look at it and go, nope, it's not, it's probably not. But I see a soccer player, any of my kids, and I go, you could go pro, which it's just illogical. It's ultimately, so to answer your question, how did I keep going through? It doesn't, I have no idea. It doesn't make any sense. I think you just have to be almost like an absolute idiot. That's like the best way to do it is mm-hmm. just being ignorant, <laughs> ignorant and go, you know, I think, you know, I'm one level, say the top, the tippy, tippy top levels of the Olympics and stuff. You know, that percentage just gets smaller and smaller. The only way, and even now, like even now, if you said to me, Zeb, where do you see a future? I go, I'm going to play for the national team. I'm going to play in the World Cup in 2026. That's what I believe. Now, um, percentage-wise, blah, 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 it's, it's, illogical. it's illogical. That's what I mean, that just doesn't, if you look at, the, if you did the math, it would be a very bad number, but mm-hmm. it would be a very low number. But that's just, you know, there's just that thing that says, I, that's what I want to do. The other thing that's super helpful, I would say, that you don't know until you've, you've gone for it, is the journey that I have gone on, that you have gone on already. I mean, look, we're doing a podcast, which is super cool. You have traveled the world. You've been with other, you've met all these people. I mean, what is the downside? Ultimately, if you look at the, we talked about zooming back 10 years from now. Look, in 10 years, say when I'm done, I pretend I'm going to be done when I'm 50 because I don't ever want to be done. So say I'm never done. But if I go to Sweden or wherever else, some people will know who I am, but if I went to Sao Tome, which is an island off the east coast of Africa, nobody's going to probably know who Zeb the soccer player is. But I'm going to have had this amazingly cool experience that I've, you know, been so fortunate to have, and I'm going to keep trying to. Have, I'm going to keep having it. So it's a two two answer question. One, you have to be illogical; it just doesn't make sense. Two, is you go, I'm going to get to do if I go for it. I'm going it, to. It's not just about. And you can only know this until I'm going to answer your second question, signing my first pro contract. You can only say this, as I'm saying now, is if you've gone and done it and you realize, oh, my gosh, I'm on this tunnel vision, but right? I'm just here. And you look to your left, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's a new country. Oh, my gosh, that's a new person. But when you're playing, you're just like, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, a danger. So when I signed my first contract, I'm going to back up just a little bit because I think, 
you know, it's a, I, I think it's a cool part of my story, is I, so I played college. Um, I was highly ranked early on. Our school got, like, we weren't a big school, but we did quite well while I was there. Mm-hmm. Then um, senior year came around, and I was not drafted. So I was like, look, here we go, open tryouts, you know, just like I talked about with you. So I went to, like, eight of them. Um, I went to one to Chicago and Florida, California. And I remember my groin was starting to act up and it was the last one that I was definitely going to get to go to that year. And I had, I had drawn some interest at these combines. I had gotten an agent and I'd seen my buddies sign. And one thing that I was struggling with was like, I would go to these combines and be like, Hey, I'm good enough. I'm just as good as whoever that guy is. How the heck am I not being picked? Um, and I went to this one near my house in Ventura. Ventura County Fusion, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And there was a coach there. His name was Precky. And we were, I was playing for 30 minutes. We hadn't even started playing in the games yet. He just saw me passing. And he came up to me and he said, look, I want to invite you to the private combine, which just shows how subjective this world is. I mean, it just makes no sense whatsoever that he liked the way I walked or whatever. You know, that's just, you know, that he liked that. And then he saw me play, confirmed what he thought, and there you go. So then I went to the to the invite thing, I did my best. He liked the system, you know. It also had to do a lot with his system of play. He liked high energy players who, and he didn't care about uniquely. He didn't care about where you played before, which was quite helpful. A lot of one of the problems you will face is particularly in some aspects of the USL is like they'd be like, did you play at a big school? If not, then I don't care. Um, and now it's I think changing a tad bit, actually getting better, but it's still it's still difficult, particularly if you didn't play D1. So uh, I went to the tryout. Then I went to preseason. So I'm still outside of contract at this point. I'm still just trying. And uh, there I had some good days. I had some less good days. I remember my agent. It was, I think it's, in hindsight, not a good system. But my agent would call me every day and go, uh, Coach, I heard that you should have done this and you should have done this. Next time, do this. So like each day, I was like trying to be coached as to what to do, which I don't know if that worked or not. But I was, I was both. I was very lucky. And also, I guess you could say I earned some luck. So then the highlight for me is we played against UCSB, who had said no to me, of course, all those years ago. And I was better. I would say better. If we're not comparing, I would say I felt very confident with the player I was playing against them, which is a very cool feeling given the fact that when I was 17, 16, 16, 17, I looked at those UCSB kids as the best players, you know, in the state. And now I was playing on a team much better than they were, better comparatively. So, um I remember uh, we were in the hotel. The coach was, like, talking to all the trialists. He said to me, yes, we're going to sign you, which, of course, was a huge, you know, the whole thing. There's everything up to, up to this point was for this moment. It was with Sacramento Republic, which was the defending champion. The best, you know, every other USL team told me no. The best one told me yes. You know, it just didn't make any sense. So... I was injured for the first couple months with my groin. That last kick of the tryout, I tore my groin. And so I didn't get to play for a couple months. And then this is when I started to begin to realize I had, there was a lot of dickheads on that team. And I struggled with that, for one. And I also, you know, I, I became relatively popular quickly in my first season. Um, and I scored a couple goals, and I was like, you know, I was heading in the direction that I anticipated as a professional. And my dream, like yours and almost every other kid in America, is to play in the Premier League. And we played that summer against Sunderland, and I played against them. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, 
this is my dream. I was the poster guy, like, for the game leading up to the game. It was me against Sutherland. It was like the dream. You know, the dream came true. <laughs> and I remember the, that Monday, after that happened, I got traded to the worst team in the league on the Eastern Conference. And I thought, like, this doesn't make any this, – this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't, I don't understand. The coach had left. New coach came in. Didn't like my walk. You know, whatever. I didn't like my <laughs> playing. And, you know, every coach has wants their own types of tools. They bring in their new tools, which I've come to learn is normal. At the time, it just was like, what the hell? And I went to – I moved to North Carolina, and that was the end of that. So one of the things that I anticipated was rainbows and butterflies when I signed that first pro contract. Just like, okay, now I live – I just on the clouds for the rest of my life. And there's no bad days. Every day is a good day. And what you come to realize is like – this is – I hate this. It's very cliche, but – you know, every day, the, whatever day you make it, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're playing pro. And one of the things I would say, it's easy for me to say, I guess, so I don't want it to sound like crude, but when you're playing the game of soccer, it's no different to what you play in your backyard. It's the same feeling. It doesn't matter if you're in front of, you know, 20,000 people, which I've had the, the pleasure to play in front of on occasion, or, you know, what I play in front of now at times, which is 200 people. But there's a little, it is different. The lead up to the game is different, you know, than your backyard and after the game is different. But the actual game of soccer, the reason I say that is because one day I might be playing in front of another 10,000, 10 million people. And one day I might be playing in front of two. And what's really heartening to me is I know it's going to feel the same. Like that feeling that you're itching right now for yourself or anyone else going to go pro, I'm telling you that feeling, you get to have that feeling when you play soccer every day. like the same feeling that you're itching for, you get already. So that is really awesome. And I think that answered your question in regards to the contract. That's kind of how it felt. And then, you know, I've been to a lot of places since, experienced a lot of things. This is a new one. This is my, my knee, a new experience. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's a heck of a journey. Awesome, man. Definitely. Man, what a... What a, a story in itself and all the journeys and, you know, signing that contract, you know, you might, you think you might go to the prem and then boom, in an instant, this happens and that happens. Um, throughout your career, I want to ask a question. What was the, what's one of the most uh, memorable moments of your Like, what's your favorite memory of you playing soccer? Was it like a ske- special game, a special goal? Like, what, what's that, what was that experience like? Uh, my favorite moment of all time is there's a video of my brother watching me score my first professional goal. Wow. And uh, that, that really means the world, actually. <laughs> um, that video, I, I looped that in my head. That really means a lot to me. So that's my favorite moment. Awesome. Okay, reversing the script a little bit, right? What was the lowest point of your career? And then how were you able to overcome that? I'm laughing because I'm thinking about my ACL and I haven't overcome it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in a sense, I've overcome it. Oh, man. I mean, this ACL is a new one for sure. Okay. I mean, Walk us through that. I'm, I'm not, what, was, what was the experience like when, when that happened? And then what's your process like to, for you to eventually overcome this? Uh, well, when it happened, I had just gotten over another – another injury i've had a lot of injuries mm-hmm. if you ask people they'd say is that's been injured a lot which i have been which is unfortunate a lot of it's been self uh administered doing too much or doing the wrong thing a lot of it some of it has been contact of some kind or non-contact in the case of my acl um 
This ACL has been a new one. I mean, I can tell you from a financial place, you know, playing pro soccer in the United States, even if you're playing in MLS, you're not going to make enough to retire. <laughs> um, you're going to make enough maybe to put something away or you're not going to make enough to put anything away and just going to do day to day and you get to do what you do, but you're not going to make that much money. So I was at a point where I was like, okay, time to grow up, quote unquote. This is kind of my last chance with this team. And I was coming up another injury and I kind of said to myself, like, look, if this doesn't work, you know, and this team doesn't re-sign me, like, I, you know, I'm in a tough position. I've been going about this for a while. And then uh, I tore my ACL and I thought, okay, well, that, I guess that sucks. But I was thrown a lifeline in a sense. They re-signed me, even though I was only there for three weeks. So that obviously was, like, okay, I get, you know, I get one more, I get another whack at it. And, or maybe one more whack at it. But, um, but I think we'll get through it. What's helped me a ton, actually, is I was, I have been so addicted to the time frame. Okay, I've only got this much, like a rush in life. Like, I got to do this, I got to do this. Even with my ACL, every day I go to sleep, I'm like, one day closer, one day closer, one day closer. And actually, a friend of mine brought it up. Is like, life is now, right now, this is it. Like, it's going to go by really fast. And you know, if you take care of little kids who are like five, and then like you see them and they're 10, you don't really feel like, like from 20, if you go from age 24 to 27, you're like, you don't really haven't changed that much. A five to 10 year old has changed a lot. And you're like, oh my gosh, when are they going to be grown up? And you're like, oh my gosh, if he grows up, what does that happen to me? That means I'm going to get older. And I was like, oh my gosh, life is right now. So one thing that's been really helpful to get over this is that to enjoy, you know, the moment I have now, I get to be with my family because of COVID. Um, and with my knee, I'm learning all these new types of uh, exercise concepts for your knee and for the other parts of your body, which I would have never dove into if it wasn't for it, which might lead to a, another way to make money. So uh, I would say that, you know, that aspect of the time, now I go, look, I'm going to play until I'm dead. So what's the rush? I still feel it, though. You know, I'm like itching to get back for the next season. I want to play in those games. Mm -hmm. So... Oh, ask me how I overcame it when I've done it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know yet. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, injuries, you know, part of everybody's career. Um, and a lot of people experience, I mean, I, you know, the reason we met was because we were both injured, right? <laughs> we're like literally recovering. Um, but in itself, you know, it's, it's an experience. Um, for me, like you said, what's your belief system? For me, when I, when I was going through my shoulder surgery, like, I, when I look back in my career, every time there was an adversity, like looking back, it just made me better. So like me going into the surgery, I, I, I like for like two years, my shoulder just wasn't getting better. And then finally I, I got to get surgery. And then I, I'm like preparing myself to get to surgery. And then like my thought process, everybody thought I was scared, but I was, just, I don't know, I guess maybe like, you know, mentally I was just, you know, working on myself really hard. I was in a way excited. I was like, okay, whenever something bad happens, I know there's something that's supposed to teach me. So it's going to push me to get even better. And then I just had that, thought process the whole time so even through therapy and through rehab I, I was always you know like constantly learning and one of the big things that I learned is through injury like I've developed like I learned so much about my body like how to take care of my body how to recover properly and just knowing when to push it when not to push it and I think that you know in itself is going to make me a better uh, athlete and you know maybe hopefully have a better career moving forward so yeah I know injuries I think you hit it on the on the on the nose with particularly when you said if you which is something i'm going to take away from you is if i can go into 
you know, it's very difficult, but to go, okay, great. You know, there's a guy, what's his name? Uh, he's been on Joe Rogan a dozen times. I forget what his name is, but he just like, whenever anything bad happens, he goes, good. That's his, his motto. Good. I'm glad that happened. I'm glad I can't walk. I'm glad I can't run. I'm glad I, you know, I have cancer, whatever it is. It just means I get to, I get to do this. If you can have that day in and day out, I mean, that's phenomenal. I can say that's pretty, you know, if you ask me, I'd be like, no, I do not want this to have occurred. (laughs) I wish I knew everything I knew now and it did not happen, (laughs) but you don't get both. So, uh, you know, I don't really believe in the whole, I don't think maybe other people don't either, but the whole alternate reality, I go, this is what happened. This is the deal. So what are you going to do? You got a couple options. You know, when it initially happened, I was, I was pretty distraught. But of course. Then, then you also realize, particularly with my injury, I mean, if you look at the amount of players that have turned their ACL, I mean, so many. Mm-hmm. So, so many. Yeah. Uh, my favorite book is actually called The Magic of Thinking Big. I don't know if you heard of that book before. Oh, I'll add that to my list. Definitely. And then one of the things he was talking about is um, they're just, he saw a golfer. And then this golfer was doing really good. But the only thing is that that golfer only had one arm. And then he asked the golfer, he asked the golfer with one arm, like, hey, like, why are you so happy? Why are you so good? You have one arm. And he's like, well, my motto is it's better to have one arm and have a right mindset than have two arms with a bind mindset. And I'm like, wow. Right. So that that's amazing. my motto of my injury. Maybe I could give you a little two cents on that. But that's basically yeah, what I've been sure what I've been thinking about throughout my whole injury process. And I know currently both going through that process and getting better because this is the Chief Greatness podcast. Uh Um, Looking back at your career, right? Just one, what's the one biggest lesson you learned through your career? And then what kind of advice would you give to your younger Zev? Uh, Biggest piece of advice, I would say, for me, the biggest piece was, is the toolbox. That was huge for me. Mm-hmm. see yourself as a tool different not better or worse once you see yourself as a tool then you just try and sharpen your own tool and then you're kind of playing your own game and when you for me when you kind of forget about when you just are thinking about your own game you just play better and you have more fun and that's what we all like and so to get my my younger self i would have told him hey stop thinking about who's better and worse and it should the coach pick this person and how to, you know, stop worrying about if I shook the hand, the coach of the hand correctly or picked up enough cones after training, you know, I'm a tool. If he doesn't like my type of tool, then it's time to figure out how to improve my tool or leave. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, one of the big things uh, from this podcast, uh, the biggest inspiration was um, when uh, Kobe Bryant actually passed away. Um, I was just looking back at his like, just someone, you know, at a peak, like, you know, someone that achieved at such a high level. And even after he finished playing basketball, he got into other ventures and was succeeding highly of that. But also when he passed away, right, it was just like the legacy was able to leave behind, right? So I have this quote, and this is basically how Achieve Greatness started, how I came up with the, the branding and everything, right? He has this quote about greatness. He says, the most important thing is to try to inspire other people so that they can do whatever great and they do. Kobe was able to inspire other people because he achieved at such a high level. So turning this into a question, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind when you, not, not go away, but what kind, of, what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind and what would you want to be remembered as? I'm going to go away one day. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I would say... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, I would say... 
be, be, be illogical. None of this makes any sense, so you may as well pick, pick your own reality since it doesn't make any sense to begin with. Um, so be illogical, I guess, would be my legacy. And then also I think it's really important, this one is important to me, is, is the mental part is like we are, we are unique and that is to be celebrated and that is a good thing and it's good to be weird and unique and, and whatever that is, I think that's a good thing. So I would like if people remember me as the proud weirdo, that would be great too. Awesome. Well, this was one heck of a show. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I've just learned so much. I think I have like five pages worth of notes. And then like I have like scribbles all over the place too because of all the value that I've um, gotten. And he has so much more content elsewhere too. And then, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely going to work in the future, right? We're going to create some amazing content in the future. And I know that. Um, so if people want to find more about you, where can they connect you? Where can they find you, Zev? Yeah, the best place would be Zev Football, Z E V F U T B O L. Uh, that's my Instagram, my IG. Uh, shoot me a message if you have any questions. Uh, there's there's a player the other day that reached out trying to go pro. I try to help everyone I can. I'm happy to do it. Um, if you want like individual advice, you know we can customize something. So yeah, that's why I would say find me and reach out if you have any questions. Zev is definitely a great <laughs> tool. <laughs> Uh, for all that um, and definitely he's helped me out so much with um, my process as you know as I try to keep achieving my greatness and you know try to further my career so one last question Zev um, kind of a hard hitter though but this is the Achieve Greatness podcast so what is your definition of greatness? Mm, good one uh, my definition of greatness comes from the book um, Good Versus Great and greatness means longevity of success. So that would mean whatever it is you do, you do it great for a period of time. And it comes from this book, Good to Great, where this guy interviewed a bunch of top CEOs. And he was saying, you know, what's the difference between you and someone else and these companies? And good companies lasted for 10 years, you know, but great companies lasted for like 50 years. General Motors, General Electric, you know, these were like 50 years going on. Ford, you know, we don't like them maybe, but, you know, whatever. They lasted, you know, the, the owner, whoever it was, the CEO, Apple's, I think, a good one. The person who brought it up died and it didn't just deteriorate into nothing. It became, it still stayed great. So that's what I would really love to do is, with a team or with a coach that always stuck with me was like, wow, I would like great. I don't, I don't want to leave and just have it deteriorated into nothing. I would like it to be great. I want to make the next person who does it be great. So that would be the answer to that question. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Hope everybody Before we go, what was that book? That book you, you liked? I want to yes. write it down. It's right here. I always recommend it to everybody. It's called the magic of thinking big. I, I literally have it always with me right here. This is uh, Zev and keep on achieving your greatness. Take care.